Hello and welcome to the AIS podcast, Politics on Point. My name is Sofia Maria Satanakis. I am a senior research fellow at the AIS, and this is the fifth episode of our special series on US-Europe relations, supported by the Austrian-American Partnership Fund. In this seven-episode special, we are covering a broad range of different topics relevant to the transatlantic relationship, providing you with perspectives and insights of high-level US experts. This includes, for instance, the future of NATO, the fight against climate change, or the strengthening of democratic values and institutions. Today, we will talk about the US view regarding European security and defense. My guest today is Mr. Benjamin Haddad, the director of the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council. He is an expert in European politics and transatlantic relations, and his area of expertise also includes disinformation, defense policy, populism, and many, many more. A very warm welcome to you. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, before we start uh, with the questions, maybe you want to say a few words about yourself, about your work, so that our listeners uh, can get a better picture of who they're going to listen to. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm Ben Haddad. I am based in Washington, D.C., where I'm the director of the Europe Center of the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council is a major uh, bipartisan think tank policy organization in Washington, D.C. Uh, bipartisan with, with a mission. We're not neutral. And our mission is really to promote uh, U.S. engagement with allies uh, in the defense of liberal democracy. And at the core of it, of course, is uh, the transatlantic uh, relationship. And at the Europe Center, what we're trying to do is um, uh, best, you know, guide U.S. policy when it comes to relations with the EU. Uh, we have a, a ton of programs at the Council, working from uh, uh, the future of NATO to the question of geotechnology, geoeconomics. We have a program working on uh, disinformation on Latin America, on Africa, uh, and the Europe Center really is on the on the future of U.S.-EU relations, coming from the defense angle to uh, the question of trade of uh, uh, the European digital regulatory environment to, of course, the politics of uh, the European Union. Wonderful. So you are the best candidate for today's topic. And I'm going to start and jump right in with our first question to you, which would be, what is the general view in the United States regarding European security and defense? And how seriously are European efforts actually taken in this area? Uh, it's a really interesting question because I think we're witnessing right now sort of a shift among U.S. experts on the question of European defense. Because the truth is, for a long time, uh, European defense efforts uh, were not really uh, welcomed in Washington. Where they were seen with a little bit of reluctance. Uh, you know, you remember, of course, Madeleine Albright in the 90s warning against the risk of uh, redundancies and duplications between NATO and uh, the burgeoning European defense integration efforts at the time. Uh, and, and we've seen this basically both among Democrats and Republicans, the idea that um, the ancestors to PESCO and EDF could be a, a challenge to transatlantic unity and to uh, NATO. And I think this is starting to shift a bit and we're gonna see some of that among the, uh, in the Biden administration, uh, precisely because there is a view that Europeans should step up their defense efforts and that uh, the European Union could be a useful vehicle, especially for specific uh, European security interests, defending their interests uh, at, in their own uh, neighborhood. Now, uh, there's still debates about how that should be done. And I think, you know, you, you, of course, it depends 
uh, who uh, you talk to. But one thing for sure is that, uh, you know, some of the, the tensions that we've seen in the last few years over the question of burden sharing, of the question of Europeans spending more uh, on defense will not disappear with Donald Trump. Of course, we'll see an administration, and we'll talk about this today, uh, Biden administration that is much more transatlantic, that's much more friendly towards uh, the European Union than its predecessors. But the question of burden sharing uh, did not start with Donald Trump. Uh, we had seen predecessors like uh, Barack Obama had talked about Europeans being free riders of um, American power. And, and this is a debate that will continue in the next few years. And so I think you're starting to see a, a shift in moods, thinking that you know maybe uh, Europeans developing their own instruments uh, can be an asset, a value added for uh, the alliance and NATO, as long as it's done in a coordinated way, of course, with NATO and, uh, and the United States. And the devil is in the detail. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. But, um, but I think you see a new generation, uh, especially uh, among democratic experts, but not limited to that, uh, that is starting to have a, a different view of this. Perfect. This shift that you mentioned, uh, it's also in line with the shift that has been occurring within the European Union efforts uh, in, in the field of, of integrating more in security and defense. Because if you take a look at the last three to four or four to five years, you can see that uh, we have been making a lot of progress. For example, with the Permanent Structured Cooperation, also known as PESCO, the European Defense Fund, and so on and so forth. So how would you assess this development in particular? Are we Europeans going in the right direction, would you say? Yeah, you're right to mention this. And I think these efforts are indeed going in the right direction. We've seen an awakening, I think, in the last decade uh, coming from uh, Europeans of their fragility, of their vulnerability on the global stage. In the same few years, we've seen a Russian aggression against Ukraine. They've seen a uh, shift of border by force for the first time. Uh, since World War II on the uh, European continent with the annexation of uh, Crimea. We've seen a, uh, a refugee crisis that was a consequence of a geopolitical crisis, the war in Syria, in which uh, Europe was completely powerless, completely uh, uh, incapable of, of shaping its environment with you know, very di direct conclusions for, uh, consequences on the European soul, from the refugee crisis to, of course, uh, uh, ISIS-inspired um, terror attacks. And... In this context, we've also seen uh, uh, a U.S. ally uh, that was uh, shaky in its commitment to uh, the alliance and much more hostile towards uh, the uh, European Union. So I think this general feeling of vulnerability, uh, both in the direct neighborhood, but also in the global geopolitical uh, context, uh, pushed Europeans to uh, uh, reawaken to security and defense issues. We've seen first individual countries, for most of them, increase their defense spending in the last few years. And as you mentioned, a flurry of initiatives from the European Defense Fund to uh, PESCO that have been developed. Now, I do think it's going in the right direction because if you, for all the talk about European weakness, if you um, look at all the European defense spending put together, uh, Europe is the second defense spender in the world behind the United States. And uh, above countries like, like Russia. So the real issue we have are the question of, of uh, redundancies, a lack of coordination among spending. And this is the kind of things that EDF, for example, is trying to uh, solve by, by promoting common uh, projects uh, among European countries. I do think though that uh, this is really not enough. And, and I think if you look at 
the increase in defense spending are some of our partners like the United States, but also some of our uh, challengers and competitors like Russia and China are increasing their spending quicker than, uh, than we are. Um, and, and at the same time, I think, you know, some of the initial ambitions and some of the rhetoric that we had heard has not been matched by necessary resources and uh, reality. If you take um, EDF, for example, the initial budget that was supposed to be allocated for it, I think was 15 billion euros. It was halved in the budget negotiation. And so uh, the European Parliament voted on something at 7 billion. Once again, a step in the right direction, but way too small a step, I think, for Europe to be able to uh, to have any sort of real geopolitical influence in its uh, neighborhood. Just in the last few months, we've seen uh, Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, hijack a plane in, um, the, uh, in the European Union, going from Greece to uh, Lithuania to arrest a journalist and, uh, um, at the, at the, and, and put his life in, the, in danger. And here again, I think that the reaction of the European Union to what was directly a challenge on its autonomy and sovereignty was, uh, was very underwhelming. And, and we see, you know, Europe is incapable of really reacting to crisis in its um, environment. So I think it'll take more effort, more unity, more coordination to really be able to uh, uh, match the rhetoric of European sovereignty or strategic autonomy or what Ursula von der Leyen calls a, a geopolitical Europe. But at least there has been this sort of awakening to uh, the sense of threat that Europe is facing. Exactly. And if I may just add uh, one thing, I think this awakening you're mentioning, it was inevitable and also necessary because of this ring of fire, this ring of instability that is surrounding Europe more and more. But I absolutely agree with you that uh, it's not enough. It's going to take a lot more effort, better coordination. But in general, as we all know, the European Union is rather slow when it comes to to being radical with progress, but um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong here. And in the next couple of years, we'll see more progress and more steps in the right direction, including, which brings me to the next question, participation of third countries in PESCO, because we have now the US participating in the PESCO project of military mobility, which was uh, celebrated as a huge deal, a big deal something that's very important for both sides of the Atlantic. How would you see um, this development? Look, I think first the U.S. participation in military mobility, I think, is welcome. It's also something that's critical to NATO, of course. I mean, these are very concrete things that we're talking about, right? Making sure that you have the same kind of roads and bridges so that, for example, tanks or a military uh, uh, vehicle and equipment can, can, come, can, can cross from a border uh, to another. This is critical to be able to uh, answer challenges that you can have from, from rival powers or on your on your borders. And uh, there's been this ongoing debate over the question of third-party participation for uh, EDF, and it's been a source of transatlantic uh, friction over the last uh, few years. I'm one of the people who think that the U.S. should be much more supportive of U.S. of European defense uh, efforts even if sometimes that means that some of the rules might exclude third-party countries or, or, or U.S. companies from competing in uh, certain contracts. I think it's much more important strategically for the U.S. to have allies that are able to stand on their two feet uh, uh, on, on defense and security. And sometimes that means promoting their own uh, defense uh, uh, industry. I think it's, it's important first in terms of building the capacities, but it's also important politically. I mean, for 
a lot of the um, European countries, increasing defense spending will probably mean having to sacrifice elsewhere. The only way uh, to sell this politically, to sell this to their public opinion, is also to be able to show that these investments will trickle down, not only in terms of security, but also in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, industrial output for uh, the country. So I think, you know, the, maybe that's a, a slight op opportunity loss for uh, U.S. companies, although, you know, so far, unfortunately, we're not talking about uh, huge sums of money anyway, especially when you compare it to the U.S. defense budget. Uh, but I think the, the value added of having Europeans who are able to be more robust on uh, defense issues is really tremendous for uh, the United States, especially as the U.S. is signaling, and that's something that we see with the Obama administration, the Trump administration, but also the Biden administration is signaling a shift in priorities away from Europe, away from uh, the European neighborhoods, North Africa and, and the Middle East. And so it puts even more of a burden and urgency on Europeans to be able uh, to, uh, to defend themselves. So I, I think it's important, it, it's, it's important to find an agreement with the US. I think it's important for the US to be a little more flexible on this than it has been uh, so far and for Europeans to have the ability to have their own uh, defense industry. Of course, you know, you look at the capabilities today, it's impossible for uh, Europeans to be completely autonomous. So no one is talking about a decoupling uh, both on the strategic level, but also on the, the industrial level between the US and, and Europe. It's really the opposite that is happening right now. Even countries like France, uh, which have been advocating very much for more European strategic autonomy, as President Macron calls it, have under Macron uh, acquired US military equipment on, you know, from, uh, 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 for example, on uh, some of the equipment on the, the new French aircraft carrier. So, you know, even, even the most uh, uh, autonomous European allies, the wonder of pushing for autonomy, understand the need to, to work closely with the U.S. defense industry. A lot of questions are generating from your answers. So um, I will start with the first that comes to my mind. You mentioned uh, the magic words, uh, European strategic autonomy which is a much debated concept, uh, not just within the European Union, but also outside of it. So do you see it as in general and long-term being beneficial for US-Europe relations? Yes, I think if we define European strategic autonomy the way European leaders who defend it do it, it's very simply the ability for Europe to be able to act on its own, if necessary, to defend its security and interests, especially in its neighborhood. And it's the direct consequence of the crisis that we've been talking about and we've seen in the last uh, few years, especially at a time where the United States is signaling that it wants Europeans to step up, to increase the defense spending and to be able to uh, secure a part of its neighborhood when the US has different priorities. And especially, of course, the focus on uh, the strategic rivalry with China, which is really something that's bipartisan right now in uh, the United States. It's clearly in the interest of the United States to have strong united allies rather than weak and divided ones. Even if sometimes it might mean disagreements, sometimes it might mean going in, in, in sort of different uh, directions, but that still means allies that can bring value added to the table. And that's something that's really the main asset. When you think about, you know, the U.S. and compared to China, for example, the main asset of the United States is, of course, 
um, its uh, its allies uh, across the world, both in Europe and in the Pacific. So having strong allies who can defend themselves is, is really important. Uh, you know, what's, um, there's sometimes, I think, uh, a debate a little bit in bad faith over the meaning of uh, strategic autonomy. And as I said earlier, uh, it, it's not about uh, decoupling from the United States. I mean, just look at France, for example, uh, the main country that's been pushing for uh, this concept is also an active member of NATO, has a very uh, dynamic bilateral uh, relationship and defense security, intelligence sharing with the United States that goes from uh, US support with ISR in the Sahel to the coalition against ISIS to a very uh, intense uh, uh, cooperation between uh, intelligence agencies on counterterrorism. So, you know, there's absolutely no contradiction between Europe asserting more of its autonomy and at the same time doing it within uh, the transatlantic uh, relationship. Exactly. So, But I, is... I would add just one point though. Uh, I think now we're at a, we're at a point where, uh, you know, we've uh, established some of these concepts from European sovereignty, geopolitical Europe, strategic autonomy. And it's interesting to see how much they shape the conversation and the debates. I think now there's an ex expectation to deliver. I think now what's really important is not so much to win the conceptual narrative, it's to, uh, to put the resources and the capabilities and the willingness to act upon them with, with concrete missions uh, to, to bolster these, uh, these concepts. When I talk to uh, friends who are close to the Biden administration, that's what they're expecting now. You know, I think they're pretty agnostic when it comes to concept. There's something good Amer about Americans. They're very pragmatic uh, that way. Uh, and Europeans generally like to have long philosophical conversation, a theological conversation. I think now uh, it, it's important to, to show both for the citizens of Europe, but also for allies and partners, that this means concrete uh, capabilities and in, in in a capacity to, uh, uh, to act upon them. Summing up, you would say that American leaders should respond to a more integrated EU defense pillar by being more supportive? Do you think they should um, kind of push the Europeans to do more, to exert some kind of pressure? What would you say? Yeah, I, all of the above. I really think that they should embrace European defense integration efforts and they should embrace the European Union in general. I think President Biden did it very well when he was uh, in uh, both in Cornwall and then in Brussels, where he said, you know, a strong EU and United EU is in the interest of the United States. That's been a bipartisan position for half a century uh, in uh, the United States. EU uh, is uh, ability to promote liberal democracy and free trade on the and peace, of course, on the European uh, continent. And it's no mistake that for a long time, EU and NATO expansion have sort of gone hand in hand. Um, although they're they're quite different, but still, you know, there has been this momentum in the '90s and the in the 2000s going. Uh, in that direction. And I think especially now is a time where um, uh, the U.S. priority will be focused on China. Look at what, what is the strategic rivalry with China about? If we put aside defense issues for a second, it's also about what kind of uh, globalization do we want? What are the rules of trade? What are the norms and standards on the use of technology and digital issues? And that's something on which clearly you want to have the European Union on your side, the main single, the, the premier integrated single market in the world, the first uh, norm and standard setter on, on technology, on trade, on the environment, of course, it's going to be a major asset for the United States to be able to work with the EU 
uh, in at the WTO, work with the EU in setting the norms and standards on the international basis. I think one of the um, successes of the, the last uh, the president's visit to Brussels was precisely the creation, the announcement of the creation of this uh, trade and tech council uh, between the United States and Europe, where we can uh, not only address some of the differences that we have on these issues, but also try to uh, shape standards together uh, from AI to 5G um, and all of these uh, supply chains and, and, and all of these matters. I think that will be really uh, critical. Very well. Let's stay a little bit uh, on the topic of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, because you mentioned uh, both of them a couple of times. And I also have a question related to that. Now we came out of four years of Trump presidency, which we unfortunately know that did not go so well for the transatlantic relationship. And now that we have Joe Biden, kind of hope was restored within the European countries to some point. Do you think that under President Biden, the transatlantic relationship will be restored? And what could that actually mean for European integration efforts in security and defense? Is that also a risk of Europeans getting more comfortable again now that we have a more friendly leader towards the EU? Well, I don't think we should look for a restoration. I think we should look for a renovation and think about how we can reshape the transatlantic relationship to take stock of the last few years, but also address the challenges that both uh, sides of the Atlantic are now facing. First, it's important to draw the lessons of the Trump years. Uh, yes, there was clearly something very specific about President Trump himself personally, about the tweets and the scandals, about you know what led to January 6th. Uh, but it's also important to see how he was a continuation and an accelerator of uh, pre-existing trends. I mean, I talked about the, uh, the backlash against uh, military interventions that we see in uh, the United States, uh, both on the left and the right. And, you know, look at uh, President Biden. One of his first major decisions was to confirm the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. And President Obama had uh, withdrawn the troops from Iraq and, of course, famously refused to intervene in Syria with the direct security consequences that it had in Europe. I mentioned also the question of burden sharing. I think Trump, you know, really focused obsessively on uh, the 2% defense spending uh, threshold. And of course, we want to have a more sophisticated conversation about burden sharing and defense and capabilities. Uh, but this is not something that started with uh, Trump and, and uh, it won't end with him. Uh, so I think, you know, you have uh, in the focus, of course, on, on the strategic rivalry with China is something that is not only confirmed, but accelerated by uh, the Biden administration. Same thing for some of the reluctance over free trade. Uh, it's important to remember that, uh, you know, it's not always noted that the President Biden has not lifted the Trump tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, because he knows that there's also some disputes over trade. There's also uh, a lot of backlash here again, both on the left and on the right against uh, uh, free trade and some of the legacy of uh, the 90s. And I think Biden uh, sort of intuitively understands this uh, very well. So, you know, it's important to look at, at some of the trends. And to your question about whether there's a risk that Europeans might become too comfortable, I do think there's a risk. I do think there's a risk. And I think here, of course, European leaders have a responsibility, but in the United States too. Uh, the, the atmospherics and the images of uh, 
Biden's trip to Brussels were very positive. And that's something to be applauded. I mean, rebuilding trust among leaders and also among public opinions is important. Uh, but now we have to move to the next step. We have to move beyond just the rhetoric of America is back and ask ourselves, what do we want from the transatlantic uh, relationship and how can we reshape it in a more uh, innovative way? And I think this is an opportunity now to have a frank conversation among friends and allies, not in a hostile way like we had the four, last four years, but still a frank conversation where we ask ourselves, what do we expect from one another? What does the United States not want to do anymore where Europeans can step up? With the kinds of missions or the kinds of theaters, especially in the European neighborhood, where uh, the US is expecting Europeans to uh, step up. Uh, I'll be this week in the Western Balkans. Um, this is a region where uh, I think, you know, clearly there are some uh, unsolved, uh, unresolved issues from uh, some, of the, some of the conflicts of, uh, of the 90s, uh, where Europe has a responsibility. You have a lot of countries that are either on the accession path to the European Union or, or hoping to be uh, uh, candidates to uh, the European Union, like Albania and, and North Macedonia. This is, I think, typically a, a region where Europe, you know, we're talking about geopolitical Europe, where Europe needs to assert its influence, needs to be more involved uh, politically uh, and, and economically. Uh, and for a long time, it was a region where actually the United States was, in a way, more, more present than, uh, than the European Union. So I think there, there are lots of issues where uh, it's time to have a serious uh, transatlantic conversation and, you know, the United States must ask Europeans to take on more responsibility. Exactly. And uh, regarding the Western Balkans, uh, this is also of huge uh, strategic importance for a country like Austria, even though we're not NATO members, we're a neutral country, but we're very interested in the integration, in the European integration of the Western Balkans. So this is also something where Austria could, as a European country, as an EU member state, uh, kind of push uh, towards the right direction. So changing the subject a little bit, because one cannot talk about European security and defense without mentioning NATO, and this is what we're going to do now, would you say that a more integrated European security and defense would mean a strengthening of NATO in the long term? Yes, as I mentioned earlier, I think for me, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, we're so far from the debate of the 90s where people worried about uh, duplication. First, let's look at the dialogue between the EU and NATO. It's been straightened, it's been upgraded in the last two decades. You have a lot of mechanisms of coordination uh, that make sure that if Europeans are spending in one direction, that's also something that is an asset and a value added for uh, NATO. So I, I think it's really time to completely overcome the reluctance uh, over this. Uh, it's in the interest of NATO in the United States to see Europeans increasing the defense spending to see Europeans coordinating their, uh, uh, their defense and security efforts and developing their own um, uh, perspective on uh, security and, uh, and, and defense issues so we can have the, the most complementary efforts on, uh, on both sides. Thank you very much for that answer. And uh, now moving on to another hot topic, which uh, cannot go by without being mentioned, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. So would you see COVID-19 as having a serious long-term impact on security and defense in general, and also on European efforts especially? 
is there some kind of risk of, of backsliding of, of investments being reduced of stagnation in the long term? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of risks. The first risk is, of course, the fact that uh, as uh, governments had to considerably step up their spending efforts to unprecedented levels to be able to uh, uh, answer the, the, the huge economic hit of the lockdowns and the pandemic, uh, of course, there's a risk that other kinds of spending, such as defense spending, are sacrificed in the, the altar of uh, economic uh, recovery and uh, you know that's something that we're going to see I think in in both the United States and uh, the European Union and that's the first risk but you know one way to mitigate that risk is actually to continue to increase coordination and integrated European uh, defense efforts because as I said I mean beyond just the question of spending if you look at the global spending of the European Union it's actually very high the question is how can you make sure that uh, you, you you coordinate and you, you can leverage each other's spending to uh, to be a, a stronger military power. That's one thing. I, I would say it's a second aspect beyond just the def defense and security uh, dimension is uh, not to forget that there's a geopolitical dimension to some of COVID-19, especially some of the recovery efforts. I just mentioned the Western Balkans. In the Western Balkans, a lot of the um, initial vaccines that were sent were Sinopharm, the Chinese vaccines. And we've also seen Russia a step up with exports of Sputnik, uh, the Sputnik vaccine. Uh, actually, Russia even uh, exported its vaccine before giving it to its own uh, citizens, which really shows the, the, the priorities here of the, uh, of the Kremlin. It's very important as we go into a long economic recovery and a health recovery, actually, because you know COVID is not uh, over if you look at the fourth wave that's starting to hit uh, the European Union. It's very important that we don't stay inward looking, uh, only focused on, on ourselves, but also remember that rival powers are stepping up uh, and that you have you know, more risk of uh, countries being indebted to China for, uh, for their recovery. So this is why also I think some of the announcements on a, uh, a massive uh, Europe, transatlantic EU-US development effort that were announced uh, at the, after the president's trip were, were really welcome. And I think now it's time to, uh, to operationalize these, but because there's a, there's a geopolitical dimension to this that's undeniable. Exactly. And one should not forget that as devastating uh, and as terrible as the pandemic has been and continues to be, that does not mean that the risks and the challenges in the international arena are gonna cease to exist or that they're gonna pause until Europe and the United States are ready to, to tackle them. So we need to multitask, I would say. Before we come to an end of uh, today's episode, uh, as a concluding question to you, uh, maybe what would you think are the main things you want to see in the next years happening when it comes to European security and defense? What would you wish for? Look, I mean, I think we need to continue the efforts uh, we've been doing uh, when it comes to spending on defense, when it comes to coordination on, on, on different projects. Uh, but I also think that we should just be a little more ambitious uh, in what we hope to achieve, especially in, in our environment. I mentioned earlier Belarus. This is an example that really struck me. Um, you have a... Uh, uh, hijacking of a plane, you have now uh, weaponized uh, migration at the border between 
Belarus in, in Lithuania, if you want to be a geopolitical Europe, you have to understand a threat. You have to understand a challenge when it's coming to you and you have to respond in kind or only to, to send a message. Um, and that's something that I think is not yet in the software of, of European leaders. And it doesn't have to be uh, the 27 deciding together. I think sometimes, you know, this debate about uh, unanimity rule versus qualified majority is a good pretext for individual countries not to act. I think you could have uh, groupings of states or individual states taking responsibility to defend European uh, security. Um, it's what we've seen, for example, with, with France and Greece working together in the Eastern Mediterranean, where uh, Turkey was sending a ship to challenge the maritime sovereignty of some European states like uh, Cyprus and, and Greece. So there's also a question beyond just the question of capacities or spending, or there's a question of politics, of, of taking responsibility and being able to, uh, to respond to, uh, uh, to challenges. So I think that's, that's something that's really important that will have to continue to change in the mindset of Europe if they want to, if Europeans want to be able to, uh, to shape their environment and, and defend their own uh, security. And the second uh, thing, so that was really uh, directed at Europeans and for Americans, I think let's let's have a frank conversation at the transatlantic level, as I mentioned earlier, on on what we expect from one another, and 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 you know have the U.S. not only embrace European defense efforts, but also have a strategic conversation about where we think Europeans should step up, where we can have a better allied uh, coordination, where Europe, where the United States can can stay more in in support. A good example of this for me has been the last few years in. Uh, in the Sahel, where Europeans were taking the lead against terrorism with support, both political, but also uh, intelligence support from uh, the United States in a mission that was clearly in US interest and in transatlantic interest and in, you know, the, the global US war against terrorism, but at least you had allies that were, uh, that were leading. That could be, it's not a perfect mission, of course, and Francis was drawing from, from part of it, but at least I think the way we, we think about it in terms of complementarity between the allies is a, is a good precedent here. Exactly. I would say to summarize, be more ambitious and be more frank with one another in order to find ways to make it work. Those are very relevant and very nice concluding words. And I thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today and uh, sharing your insights and your expertise with us. It was an absolute pleasure to listening to your compact uh, answers. And um, I hope it was also a pleasure from your side to, to talk to us today. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you so much.